Welcome to And Justice for All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University, exploring the relationship between education and justice, and the transformative power of inclusive education. Hosted by Roosevelt University President Ali Malekzadeh. The coronavirus pandemic has hit marginalized communities hardest, exposing systemic racism, the growing wealth gap, and extreme polarization in our country. Amid such vast inequality, what does the American dream need? Five years ago, Roosevelt University started the American Dream Reconsidered Conference to understand our national ethos of democracy and equality. As we embark on the 75th anniversary of Roosevelt's founding, as well as the centennial of the 19th Amendment, we need to re-examine the idea of the American dream. Rather than individual wealth, the American dream of our namesake, Eleanor Roosevelt, emphasized full participation in civic life, a right and responsibility to vote, to protest, and to invest in the common good. This year's virtual conference will explore what it means to live a vibrant civic life as a core aspect of the American dream. Today I'm joined by conference co-chairs Margaret Rung, Professor of History and Director of the Center for New Deal Studies, and Andy Trees, Visiting Professor of Political Science. They will talk about this year's thought-provoking panels and what they hope these conversations will inspire. I will also hand over hosting duties to them for the next few episodes as they sit down with some of our panelists. So we hope to see you all virtually at the American Dream Reconsidered Conference, September 14 through 17. And for more information, please visit roosevelt.edu at backslash American Dream. I also want to thank, a special thank to our title sponsor, Blue Cross Blue Shield of Illinois, and their CEO, and our trustee, Maurice Smith. Thank you. Hi, Margie and Andy. This year's theme is... Eleanor Roosevelt's American Dream. Now, what made you decide to center the conference around her version of the American Dream? Margie, you go first. Thanks. Um, That's an excellent question. Uh, And I have a, a couple of answers to that. One is that I've always been struck by the fact that both Franklin and Eleanor Roosevelt came from a background of wealth and privilege but over time developed such a strong sense of civic duty and public service. Um, And this seemed to be especially true of Eleanor, who over time evolved into somebody who was deeply committed to the principle of civic engagement. And that was really a common theme throughout her whole political life 
I'd say from the 19 teens on. And as first lady, she spoke frequently about civic life and emphasized that participation in the civic sphere was fundamental to a government of and for and by the people. And I think she really saw herself as a servant of the people. And in many ways, when you read her correspondence or you look at her papers, much of what she was doing in the 1930s and 40s was constituent services. She was trying to facilitate and help people who were writing to her uh, with requests. And I think she really took these ideals to heart when she began to work for the United Nations. And of course, that culminated in the Universal Declaration of Human Rights, which she helped draft. What I found interesting was that a year before she died in 1961, she wrote an article in The Atlantic. And in the article, she talks about the American dream and the need to bolster American democracy as a means of challenging totalitarianism. So she explicitly connects the American dream, not to upward economic mobility specifically, but really to political ideals, um, especially democracy. So her American dream was very much framed in terms of politics, not necessarily economics. And she stressed the need to have a functioning civic sphere in order to give democracy legitimacy. And I just wanted to read a couple of lines from that article because I think it kind of sums up her, her view. She writes, quote, in the last few years, I have grasped at every opportunity to meet with the young, to talk with college students, to bring home as strongly as I can to even young children in the lower grades, our responsibility for each other our need to understand and respect each other. The future will be determined by the young, and there is no more essential task today, it seems to me, than to bring before them once more in all its brightness, in all its splendor and beauty, the American dream, lest we let it fade, too concerned with ways of earning a living or impressing our neighbors or getting ahead or finding bigger and more potent ways of destroying the world and all that is in it. And I feel that that essentially encapsulates the American dream for Eleanor. And it's really one that I think all Americans should embrace. Well said. Andy, your thoughts on that? Yeah, I would say uh, just to echo what Margie was just saying, that it really ties in, I think, wonderfully with the theme of the conference, the American dream reconsidered. And I think too often in America, the American dream gets reduced to success with the dollar sign. And so I think especially these days with a lot of the protests that are going on and the way that we are clearly falling short in much broader terms and economic terms, it, I think Eleanor Roosevelt's vision as a theme for this conference is a really wonderful way to get people to think about the American dream more broadly than simply material success. Well, well said. And now, can you tell us a little bit about the various panels that you have all put together for this conference this year? And maybe, Andy, you go first this time. Absolutely. So I think we have a a very exciting uh, group of panels, and I think they'll be really interesting for the university community and also for the broader community. We start the conference on Monday, September 14th with Franklin Eleanor Roosevelt Distinguished Lecture. Uh, this one's on 21st Century New Deal Political Leadership. And I think the idea is we're trying to harken back to that moment uh, in FDR's lifetime and Eleanor's back in the 1930s when there was this kind of burst of progressive legislation and a more progressive vision for the nation. 
and really bring that up to date in a surprising way. So the panelist for that is uh, Chakwe Lamumba, who's the mayor of Jackson, Mississippi, which is not typically a region associated with progressivism. But we thought it'd be interesting to have him talk to David Ferris, who's a political science professor at Roosevelt, both to bring in the perspective of progressivism in an urban landscape, but also to talk about progressivism in terms of the South and the role that it can play there and in other regions where we wouldn't expect to find it. So to sort of find maybe some seeds of optimism in sort of larger patchwork of America where we can start to see that even in unexpected ways. Yeah. So that's the first uh, panel. The second one is on Tuesday, Champions of Democracy, Black Women and the Right to Vote. And uh, I think we're both very excited about this panel. This ties into the, the 19th Amendment, the anniversary of the 19th Amendment, guaranteeing women the right to vote. And we have a couple of wonderful historians, Lisa Matterson and Martha Jones, who both written books on this. And what I think is interesting about this panel is that it's not just about the 19th Amendment, but we're going to be looking at the role of black women in fighting for the vote. And this is a sort of neglected chapter where black women, even as they were struggling on behalf of women, faced a dual struggle and that they were also discriminated against on the basis of race. So I think this panel will be interesting in exploring it from a perspective that maybe most people don't think about most of the time. So that's, that's our Tuesday panel. On Wednesday, it's the One Book, One University discussion, thanks to the Mansfield Institute. Luis Alberto Urea, the author of Into the Beautiful North, is coming to talk and has written a really wonderful novel. It's about a young woman. All the men in the community have left because they've all gone to work in America. And it's uh, sort of her struggle to find identity, even as she crosses back and forth across the border, which I think is obviously in these days, a very relevant examination of, of our identities in an international time. So I think that will be a really wonderful panel as well. And then also on Wednesday in the evening, we're going to have a panel on the struggle for LGBTQ plus rights. We have an emphasis on activists in this. Uh, the panelists are all people who are working right now to try to expand those rights. And once again, we're trying to take a little bit of a different tack, not just talk about the struggle within the heterosexual world, but also talk about the struggles within that community for individuals to find their own place and find acceptance among the LGBTQ community. Uh, so we have uh, Lasai Wade, who's the founder of Brave Space Alliance, uh, Camilla Taylor, who is the director of constitutional litigation at Lambda Legal, and Modesto Tico Valley, who's the chief executive officer of the Center on Halstead. I think all three will have really interesting things to say about what's going on right now in terms of local activism. And then picking up on that activist thread, on Thursday, we're going to have a panel speaking truth to power, which is going to feature Roosevelt University students who've been active in the protests that have occurred in the wake of George Floyd's death. And I think this is going to be really interesting and really timely. Unsurprisingly, in a school committed to social justice, we have students who are very much engaged in what's been going on. So we're going to hear from them and hopefully not just about their own experiences, but also get a chance to talk to them about their thoughts about where we go in the future and what are the strategies and the tactics we need to embrace to try to continue to make progress. And perhaps in another 50 or 100 years, we won't have to have protests on these issues anymore because things will be better. So uh, we have a couple other panels as well that the, the details are learned to find, but Lynn Weiner is going to come talk about the history of Roosevelt and tie it into some of the themes of the conference and their, their uh, possible panel with Mayor Lightfoot, although the details are still to be announced. Okay. Well, you know, these are really exciting panels. I'm looking forward to participating. You know, Margie, what do you hope 
that the participants will get out of the conference? That's a great question, too. I think that there are a couple of things that I hope people get out of the panels. I think first and foremost, I really want participants to feel empowered and to to be the change that they want to see. I think it's important to stress throughout this conference the intersection of social movements and electoral politics. They don't they can't exist without the other. And I think what we really need to do is to figure out how we can use the levers of power that we have to make meaningful change. And then I think the final thing is, as I said, just to encourage this idea of agency. Uh, I think it's very easy to feel hopeless and to feel powerless in this kind of a situation that we're in in 2020. <laughs> For a lot of reasons, so I want the I want the conference to give people some hope and optimism, and also to equip them with some tools that they can use to then go out and really start to change the narrative and change the structures in the United States, so that we can Im- sort of improve on and expand the American dream for everyone. Yeah, these are amazing goals, and you know, before I turn over the mic. To the two of you, the proverbial mic, of course, why are you first? Tell me, what does American dream mean to you? That's a really hard question to answer, I think, on a lot of levels. It has never been, for me, about wealth or power or <laughs> riches. I think, for me, the American dream is one in which there is a robust social contract in the United States that puts the welfare and the well-being of the many before the interests and the privileges of the few. So that would be my American dream. Yeah. And Andy, your American dream. Yeah, I I think that's a great question. So uh, my specialty is in the the founding period. And I think this is really gets to some very profound issues with the nation. I think the idea of the American dream is tied in very clearly with the whole idea of the birth of a nation and what it, it, being an American means. And so I think for me, the American dream is not so much a, a settled goal, but a process. And I think much as we've redefined the Declaration of Independence to include groups who have not been included from the beginning of the founding, I think the American dream is something that we always have to question and consider sort of a work in process where it's something that hopefully is expanding to encompass a richer life, not just the sort of base material needs, but civic engagement, even things like spiritual growth, that it's really, I think, in its most successful form, a kind of holistic idea about life that gets broader and broader as we develop as a nation. You're listening to And Justice For All, the official podcast of Roosevelt University. Again, you know, these are amazing, amazing goals that you both have for this amazing conference. So uh, this should be fun. All right, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Ali. Um, so we wanted to ask you a few questions. And you are the, the founder of the American Dream Conference. So clearly, uh, this theme means something to you. So the first question that I'd like to ask you is, one about your own personal history and journey. You had recently graduated from the University of Denver 
when the Iranian revolution occurred. And I wanted to ask if you would mind talking a little bit about your thoughts and your feelings uh, when you realized that you were going to stay in the United States and make a life here. Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, my wife and I, we both finished our degrees and uh, we're planning to go back to Iran. And suddenly the Iranian revolution happens. And it's uh, somebody pulling the rug from under you. You're up in the air. You are literally stateless. And to magnify it, this was um, animosity with the United States, with the hostage taking that was going on. And here we are now in the United States, stateless. We can't go anywhere. We have no passport that is valid. And so I really feel for the DACA students right now, you know, we'll come back to the, you know, immigration question, because at that moment when somebody said, oh, your visa is not valid, you know, okay, what do you do? And many people can't go back. And for me and my wife, uh, there was no country to go back to. That, that was the issue. So we applied for political asylum in the United States. And we were fortunate that uh, we were granted asylum and eventually received our green card and then the U.S. passport, and we became citizens. But during that time, which is, you know, five, six, seven years, you are basically stateless. Okay? And, you know, the corollary that, you know, I mentioned similarity to each of you, uh, you know, today you're in Illinois, and then you go to Indiana, and then as you're driving that, somebody said, no, you can't go back to Illinois anymore. That's it. You just can't go back, period. And he's like, well, what do you mean? It's home. Yeah, but they won't have you back. So to me, that's what it was. So fortunate, we were fortunate that then we continued our education, got our doctorates, and then got into teaching, which was in both of our bones and our families. And we were fortunate that we were in the United States to pursue the American dream. And to me, actually, the American dream is higher ed, education, higher ed. And I'll say more about that. Thanks. I guess one thing I just wanted to add to that uh, as you were talking uh, is that I think one thing that's occurring right now is that people are really being affected by world events. And so your experience was one in which, as you said, you were, you know, here's something that's occurring beyond your control, world event that you have nothing to do with, but which is affecting your life profoundly. Um, so I think a lot of people today can relate to that because of what um, is occurring right now with the pandemic. Yes. So thanks for sharing that. But we were also curious in thinking about the American dream, right, this sort of quintessential part of being an American is there some sort of equivalent in Iran when you were growing up? Is there some sort of Iranian dream? And is, how does that compare to the American dream? And sort of what's what's the cultural translation between those two? <laughs> it's a very good question. It actually goes back to Margie's reading of Eleanor Roosevelt's American dream concept. In Iran, uh, the Iranian dream is a community dream. It's the welfare of the family the clan, the city, the nation as a whole is a dream that needs to be realized. And, you know, the Persian history, Iranian history, 
goes back over 3,000 years. So through history, when you get invaded, you lose wars, you win wars, so forth and so on. Politically, uh, the survival of the nation was always uh, dependent on preserving the culture, the literature, the poetry, um, and all the things that you can pass on with your family. And it was hardly ever based on wealth. Mm. Okay, Of course, there are wealthy people and there are not so wealthy people. But when you talk about the culture, it is based on preserving the dream of your family and supporting your family. Uh, the social security system that you have is based on your children taking care of you. Okay? And you taking care of all your family members. So it is a family clan related rather than wealth related. Hmm. That's very interesting. It, well, I'm curious, when you came over here, I mean, obviously America very individualistic, often not very concerned about the common good. Uh, Was that a difficult transition? I mean, or or do you find still you sort of like push back with your own background and your own values to try to live differently? How does that sort of play out over your years? At first it was shocking because of the bragging about wealth that I had never seen or heard of. Bragging about my car, bragging about my home, bragging about how many millions and billions I have. And, you know, I went to a wedding in L.A. for a friend of mine, and uh, young couples around the table, there were six couples sitting there, and the people next to me asked me, you know, as saying hello, uh, what kind of car do you drive? I was so shocking because it was wealth-related, and they really meant it that way. And, you know, it was a rental. Well, <laughs> so... <laughs> <laughs> that conversation ended very quickly. Um, and, you know, overall, uh, Margie and Andy, I see our nation as uh, feast or famine. Almost everything is feast or famine. It, there's no moderation in how we treat each other, how we do things. You know, if there's a latest diet, absolutely 100%, everybody has to do that and give up whatever they were doing the, uh, the day before. So, however, I should say that Americans have big hearts. From the first day, that really, really resonated with me. They are generous. We are generous. They open their arms to people from other countries. So, therefore, from the first day, I felt welcome because of that. And that generosity follows through today with the charity work that everybody does and the civic work that everybody does. Uh, But at the same time, this whole notion of excess is now I can see us, you know, dividing us even further than previous. Yeah, I mean, if you think about it, too, in the 1980s, the most popular TV shows were Dynasty and Falcon Crest and Dallas. Dallas. (laughs) (laughs) And I think a lot of people abroad, they see those shows and they think that represents the United States. Um, And it's somewhat sometimes a little difficult to say, well, that's that's just a small subset of, (laughs) of individuals. So I'd like to ask you a question, Ali, about your own political awakening. So looking back to your childhood and young adulthood, when did you start to become politically aware? And how would you say that your engagement with civic life has changed over time? 
You know, as a teenager, uh, I do remember because I was grown up in a family of matriarchs and women ruled. My grandmother ruled, my mom ruled, my aunts ruled, and that's, that's how it was. So equality and matriarchy was given to me until I came to the States and saw the absolute opposite of that. And uh, women uh, that were struggling to have equality uh, despite the 19th Amendment. And what was striking is in the early 70s, I called uh, my wife was sitting next to me. She called to make a plane reservation for herself to fly from Denver to Salt Lake City. And the person on the other side, I said, ma'am, you know, here's your name. I understand. What is the name, last name of your husband? The plane reservation required her to give the name of her husband. Okay, think about that. Now, we've come a long way from that, but until I see a leader in our nation, a president who's a woman, we have a long way to go. 76 other nations have had multiple women elected as their premier, leader, prime minister, president, what have you. So we have a long time to go. And to me, that feminism is in my bones, you know, uh, ardent feminist, and I espouse equality for everybody. And I fight for that every way I can. And I saw this, the awakening was during the Reagan era. When I see again the nation separating between the rich and the poor and the have or the have not. And that really bothered me. And then you know, we're seeing the, really the results of that today in our political discourse, which is absolutely unfortunate. And then uh, as a freshman, I took a class in the, at the University of Denver in the black experience in the U.S. And I had African-American friends, and they really showed me what is happening in the nation for them with the police brutality and the racism. It was absolutely shocking to me because, again, the perception from abroad was this is a nation of equals, and this kind of sort of thing doesn't exist. I come here, and I see women treated as second-class citizens, and I see especially African-Americans being treated that way. And same sort of thing. And still we are struggling for that. The 1619 Project, and talking about slavery and so forth. You know, uh, I'm looking at the New York Times and it says, Senator Tom Cotton is trying to pass legislation to prevent schools from teaching about 1619 Project. And I'm saying, this is 2020. Anyway, I'll stop there. Thank you. We're also curious, you've obviously lived in America a long time now, and we suspect there is a sort of complex interweaving of both an American identity and Iranian identity for you. I wonder if you could talk to us a little bit about your sense of identity and also how that might inform your political thinking as you look at our political landscape today. Yeah, you know, it is the culture of really modesty, community, family, supporting that. And again, I you know, seek friends or family friends who are the same and do the same, irrespective of their race, their religion, their political 
backgrounds and having that community that's all we're able to talk, we're able to communicate and also, you know, grow my daughters that way. Uh, they have the same political views that my wife and I have and fight for the same battles. And I'm really proud of them because of that. But to me, it is about the future of our nation. You know, we are in uh, a university. We're so privileged to be in a university. The work that each of you do, Margie and Andy, it is amazing because you see the results in the education of your students. Now, two years, five years, 10 years down the road, when they run into you and they're able to talk about Eleanor Roosevelt and the American Dream Conference that they attended because of your vision and how they learned what they needed to learn. So again, kudos to you for doing that. And I'm privileged to be part of this process. Thanks. I think we just have one um, sort of final question we'd like to ask, and it's we're going to circle back to something you've talked about already. But so much of what we've been discussing in today, in today's um, circle, centers on immigration and how it relates to the idea of American identity. So, as someone who was born in Iran and is now an American citizen, we're wondering if you could define for us the term American and how. Does that definition inform your sense of political issues such as immigration? Yeah. No, to me, the, uh, the word American means a phrase that we will question everything. Okay. And that is the basis of a, a liberal arts education in a university. You question, especially the authority, you question everything, and you make sure that your students and your colleagues learn how to do that and do it without punishment, without any sanctions and so forth. And immigration is the basis of this nation, except for the Africans who were brought here under slavery and the Native Americans, so the two original sins of this nation. Everybody else came mostly because of choice, although we had other immigrants as well, but we have to recognize absolutely everybody for who they are and what they do. And I think we need to fight for immigration to make sure it's open. Uh, today, if we open our doors, many, many, many strong, young, educated and uneducated people aspire to come to the United States, not because of the wealth, but because of the opportunity that will be given so they can speak up. So they can say their piece and they can question authority. And, you know, look at what is happening right now in Hong Kong. You look at that and say millions of citizens of Hong Kong rather be elsewhere because the ability to speak freely is now being eroded significantly by the central government in China. So to me, that is the basis of being an American is to question everything. Thank you, um, President Alexadei. Uh, that was very, very stimulating conversation. And we want to thank you for taking some time out to talk to us and introduce the American Dream Reconsidered Conference for this year. Um, we're looking forward to the panels. And we will, as you've mentioned, have a series of these podcasts so people can get excited about the panels and hopefully tune in um, to our first ever virtual conference in, on, starting on September 14th. Yeah. Well, I look forward to it.
And thank you for the two of you and your team for getting this done. You're welcome. Yeah, thank you. And Justice for All is produced by Roosevelt University and is available at roosevelt.edu or anywhere you get your podcasts. The music for And Justice for All is written and produced by Jesse Case. Thanks for listening.